0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back to our grand round series. I hope you've had a, a good summer, July and August. We, we did pause for those two months uh, to make sure that we, we can get our energy back and uh, we keep going. Uh, this has been a, a, an incredible time uh, since uh, uh, early March when this pandemic started here in Connecticut in the United States. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud of everything that you have done as care providers, pediatricians, APRN PAs uh, anyone who's been on really here in Connecticut you've done a remarkable job Uh, we've made a lot of progress Uh, things continue to evolve of course and and we're not out of the woods yet I mean this is really uh, the time where we need to uh, you know get ready be prepared Uh, here Connecticut Children's will keep you informed give you all the things all the tools that you need to keep your patients safe to keep your family safe as much as we can. So again, welcome back. I think we have a really exciting series for the next uh, year. We'll go all the way through the end of June. Who knows what the, you know that will bring us. A lot of change here in the United States. I do wanna take time to thank the, the CME uh, committee, uh, Anna Marie Bulio, Liz Anderson, Nicole Capsolas, Ken Spiegelman, and all of you who prepare this series. I think they've looked very carefully at what you need uh, for, uh, f- for education, uh, things that are relevant, pertinent, and you will see uh, through the communications that we have some really, really exciting speakers coming through. Uh, I do want to remind you of the uh, evening lecture series. The first one is September 10th. Uh, you can go on the website, and you will find out the information about this. And we also have this other series that we started last year, which is uh, pedi- pediatricians and PJs. I'm not sure they're actually in PJs, but it is something that you do in the, in the evening, I, I believe. And uh, with, for, a, for a small fee, you get some really you know fantastic people giving you information about relevant topics in, in pediatrics. Uh, we also, on September 11th, will reinitiate our Pediatrics, uh, the Ask the Experts uh, session with John Shriver and, and always a parallel speaker. I think that was a, a series that everyone enjoyed. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be done in conjunction with our, our uh, new Vance uh, Danbury Hospital Pediatric Grand Rounds uh, at 8 o'clock on Fridays. Uh, let us know if this is working for you. Always keep us informed, and we will adjust accordingly as we go through. Now, uh, today we have a, a, a wonderful speaker that will be introduced in just a minute by Dr. Kathy Wiley. Uh, it's, a, it's a topic that is, uh, is very relevant to us and, and it's really the impact on racism uh, on, on everything that we do uh, here in the United States of America. And, and it's something that we got to pay attention. Uh, it's, it's something that has been brought up uh, uh, you know, through many decades, but it's really now uh, come to fruition in, in many ways, hopefully in a positive way so that we can actually change the way we do things here in this beautiful country that, that we all live in, uh, so I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Kathy Wiley to come up to the podium. Uh, everyone knows Kathy. Kathy is uh, is our head of our general pediatrics division. Uh, she's a champion for children. She's a true advocate. Somebody who uh, believes in justice, justice for all. Who uh, uh, it, you know, I can't think of anyone else in, in our department who who cares more about uh, the, the the role of the pediatrician in general pediatrics and the role of of what we do as a, as a department with the kids, uh, the underserved children.
1: Uh,
0: she's been working in the city of Hartford for many, many years uh, with kids uh, uh, that, that are uh, in situations that are sometimes very complicated. And she's somebody who stands up for them. So I'm really proud uh, to be uh, associated with Kathy uh, and her family, and Jim, who is also uh, equally committed to pediatrics uh, and lives, lives of children. So I'm going to ask Kathy to introduce our speaker, uh, who you I think you will enjoy on a topic of impact on racism in child and adolescent health. So Dr. Wiley, if you can come up to the podium, please. Good
1: morning, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Salzar, for those very kind words. There's lots of committed people here. Um, I want to also welcome everyone to the first grand rounds of the new academic year. Um, I have the special privilege of introducing Dr. Jacqueline Dujay. She will speak um, as Dr. Salazar said on racism and children. Um, I was first introduced to Dr. Dujay at a Reach Out and Read national meeting um, in June. Um, This occurred uh, two weeks after the death of George Floyd um, when the Reach Out and Read national committee uh, transitioned quickly from um, everything COVID to everything to do with racism and systemic racism and um, our approach. And at the time, the discussion was focused on um, children's understanding and experience with racism and um, what we could do to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion in children's books. Um, you'll see how those things come together a little bit later as Dr. Dujay talks about solutions. Um, as excited as I was to, inter- to invite Dr. Dujay, I was worried that we might be missing an opportunity by waiting until um, September to have her speak. Um, That was naive. Um, The uh, national events continue to painfully demonstrate that um, issues of racism and systemic racism remain front and center priorities to address. um, And this talk could not be more timely. Um, Dr. Jose is a general pediatrician and a public health professional. She's a native of Washington, DC, and has spent most of her professional life in the Washington DC and Maryland area. Uh, She received her undergraduate degree in pharmacy from Rutgers University and her medical degree at the Robert Wood Johnson Rutgers Medical School. She completed her pediatric residency at same place, Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital, and that was followed by a master's degree in public health at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Dr. Juge is also a mother of two college-age sons, dealing with all things COVID related to college. Um, she's a vigorous child health advocate and a prolific writer. She's been a blogger for more than 10 years. She's written and self-published two children's books, and she's the creator, producer, and host of two podcasts, What is Black?, and Talking About Books for Kids. Dr. Jose's wide-ranging experience and interests include general pediatric practice, adolescent health, public health, infant mortality, school health and school-based centers, media, cultural competence, and community engagement. Dr. Juse has served in numerous volunteer and leadership roles. To name just a few, she currently serves on the Frederick County Public Health Racism, Racially Equity Committee, and has been medical director of the Howard County, Maryland Bureau of Child Health, and is past president of the Maryland Public Health Association. Dr. Juse is very uh, active in the AAP at the national level, She has served as co-chair of the AAP Public Health Special Interest Group, as a member of the AAP Task Force on Diversity and Inclusion, and especially pertinent today, she's a co-author of the remarkable and prescient AAP policy statement, The Impact of Racism on Child and Adolescent Health. Dr. Juge is eager to help us move our dialogue forward um, and welcomes your questions and comments. So please use your Q&A function uh, freely and often. And with that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Juge.
2: Um, Good morning, and thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you all today. Um, Next slide, please. So I have no disclosures. Um, Next slide, please. So today, what I want to cover are defining the problem. Um, So so we all have an understanding of the terminologies that I'm going to be using throughout the presentation. Discussing racism as a core social determinant of health, and then providing some guidance on how um, we can address the effects of racism on children and adolescents, and engage in a discussion because this really is an ongoing discussion. Next slide, please. As you'll see throughout the presentation, um, and as Dr. Catherine um, alluded to, the work with work with reach out and read is very um, important to me. Books are also very important to me because they can do such wonderful things. And if you're ever in a, in a need for how to start a conversation, there's always a book to read. If you're always um, in trying to determine, how do, I, how do I learn more about an issue um, or solutions? Um, books are um, great resources. So peppered throughout the presentation, um, you'll see these wonderful books. Um, that are great. That are great resources from you know from childhood to adulthood. Next slide, please. So let's start the presentation by discussing um, some definitions so that we understand race and racism. Next slide, please. So the next two quotes and def- quotes and definitions come from Dr. Kamara um, Phyllis Jones, who has done extraordinary work on the issue of racism um, as a social determinant of equity um, and how do we really um, address um, racism so that we can um, address um, health inequities. So she defines race as a social construct, a social classification based on a phenotype that governs the distribution of risk and opportunities in a race conscious society. So the key point here is that race is a social construct. Next slide please. With that being said, we know from genomic studies that humans are more like than they are dislike. Next slide, please. Um, next slide, or, yeah. So this is another, again, definition of racism. So without having a definition of race, we can't have the concept of racism which as Dr. Kamora Jones says, is a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call race, that unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities and unfairly advantages other individuals and communities and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. And as we'll discuss um, throughout the presentation, um, our work as healthcare providers very much is in line with addressing racism as it does affect children. Next slide, please. So when we, we, so we talk about race, we talk about racism, but let's talk about systemic racism. So systemic racism are the ways that policies and practices of organizations or systems advantage some populations while disadvantaging, while disadvantaging others, creating different outcomes for different racial groups. And as we have seen um, over the last few weeks and last few months, systemic racism does only um, impact educational systems or our justice systems. They also impact our health systems. Next slide, please. So next we'll talk about the social ecological model of racism, how racism impacts those those, um, systems that surround an individual. Um, next slide, please. So this figure um, of the socioecological model um, shows how racism operates at the interpersonal, interpersonal, institutional and systemic levels. Um, on the interpersonal level, there's internalized racism, stereotypes. On an interpersonal level, overt discrimination, implicit bias. On an institutional level, how racism impacts us how we hire, under or overvaluing contributions based on race. On the community level, we look at differential resource allocation, such as racial or class segregation of schools. And then on the systemic level, our immigration policies, incarceration policies, and also our um, economic policies. Next slide, please. More wonderful books. Um, Next slide, please. So now we're moving on to discussing racism as a core social determinant of health, as I call the evidence. Next slide, please. Um, yes. So as a, as both a um, pediatrician, medical provider, I'm also a public health provider. And, and our lexicon has become this terminology of social determinants of health, right? Those conditions in which we are born, grow, live, and age. One of those conditions that impacts um, our health and well-being is also racism, which I believe is a, uh, is, a, is a core social determinant of health and linked to health inequities. Next slide, please. So I took, I took this slide. Um, NIHCM has this wonderful um, infographic um, systemic racism as a public health crisis and the impact on the black community. And I loved how this just kind of summarized um, this link between social determinants of health, health inequities and systemic racism. So if we look at different, you know, different um, social determinants of health, um, food, right? So we have, we have food insecurity. We know that black, black Americans are more than two times more likely to face hunger than white, their white peers. We look at housing, wealth, education, and our justice system. You can see the continued um, disparities that cannot solely be um, defined or determined based on race. Next slide, please. So, how, do, how does systemic racism and the, st- and the stress of racism impact our health? So, our normal body, right, homeostasis, we have stressors such as racism. That change our that create a create that create a threat for our bodies, right? So that's that that's that stress, and if it's chronic and unremitting, um, that's where we where we see problems. Okay, um, our bodies produce cortisol, which can then lead to inflammatory processes, and over time, if it's if it's not. Um, if it's not addressed, it can lead to chronic health conditions such as, or increase our risk of hypertension, depression, diabetes, and more. Um, and as many of you are, uh, as pediatricians are aware, even adult physicians, adverse childhood experiences, we know that those experiences um, that children experience, um, chronic stress, toxic stress in childhood, increases risk of prolonged disease, right? Of, of chronic disease. And if we look at that model, racism is one of those um, toxic stresses. Um, Next slide, please. So this is a snapshot of health inequities that impact children. We know prenatally, black women are three to four times more likely to die giving birth than white women. Black infants die are two times more likely as white infants to be born low birth weight, as well as our infant mortality rates. Um, and we're also finding that indigenous um, Native Americans, Asian Pacific, Asian, right, their, their rates of infant mortality are also um, higher than white infants. Hispanic children, in um, some studies have found to have 58% fewer visits to any mental health professional than, a white, uh, than white children. Graduation rates are lower for African, Hispanic, and American Indian students compared to white students. And Hispanic children are approximately eight times likely and black children five, t- five times likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19 compared to white children. And again, we have to look at these health inequities, not through a racialized racialized lens, but understand why these disparities and inequities are occurring despite the, the different racial classifications. Um, next slide, please. So this just summarizes how the stress stress response um, leads to these chronic diseases and these health health disparities. Next slide, please. Next is is this wonderful schematic diagram from Dr. Nia Hergaris and her colleagues that look at the impact of indirectly experienced or vicarious racism. Children not only experience the effects of racism directly, but through secondhand experience of racism. Dr. Garris has been has been known to, to talk about or or compare um, vicarious racism to secondhand smoke. And this is a summary of a re, of reviewed studies describing racism's exposure pathways and health outcomes. And then there's certain mediators for how how racism uh, works to create these um, health outcomes. So both direct and indirect experiences of racism contribute to chronic health conditions, as well as impact education, um, social, emotional health, mental health, as well as um, healthcare utilization. Next slide, please. So as Dr. Kamara Jones says, we need to address the social determinants of equity, including racism, if if we are to achieve social justice and eliminate health disparities. Next slide, please. Some other wonderful books. All right, so now we're getting to the real heart of the presentation. How can we, you know, we know we're, we're learning about the impact of racism. We've heard about recent news events and it may seem very, very daunting. Is there anything we can do? But there is, so there's some hope. So next slide, please. So last month was the one year anniversary of the release of the AAP policy statement on the impact of racism on child and adolescent health. This policy outlined recommendations for pediatric providers um, to be be prepared to discuss and counsel families of all races about the effects of exposure to racism, help parents talk to their children about race and racism and advocate on behalf of our patients and families. Next slide, please. And this month, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics this this policy statement was um, was put out last month on online, but will be published in um, on the Pediatrics journal this month. And it's the Truth and Reconciliation and Transformation statement that the American Academy of Pediatrics put out. This this policy statement um, really shows the commitment that the American Academy of Pediatrics has to addressing its history um, of racism and reconfirming um, or recommitting um, its its work um, to address anti-racism. Next slide please. So Dr. Maria Trent who's one of the co-authors as well as Dr. Daniel Dooley. So Dr. Maria Trent put this so wonderfully. She She's quoted as saying racism is a socially transmitted disease it's taught it's passed down. And the reason why this quote is so you know, so impactful for me and so important for me is that it sort of connects the dots, you know, thinking about how how do I as a healthcare provider, as a public health provider, have anything to do with addressing racism? But when you look at it in the, in the perspective of what does a healthcare provider do, right? Our goal is to prevent disease. And if we can't prevent it, how can we treat it or mitigate, right, the impact of that disease on, on human lives, right, so that we can improve long-term health outcomes, improve health and well-being. And knowing that racism, if it's in the, in the, in the construct of a socially transmitted disease or understanding that, that word disease and it's transmitted socially, then there's a role for us as healthcare providers and myself as a healthcare provider to make sure that I can do everything possible to either prevent it or mitigate um, the impact of racism. Next slide, please. and some other great um, books, book recommendations. Next slide, please. So we're gonna, um, these slides are, are really a summary of taken from the policy statement, just to provide some context and the beginning of a discussion, because please keep in mind that the policy statement is just the beginning. The truth and reconciliation policy is just the beginning. There's more work to be done and more work and it will take, and, and this will take time. So we're building, we're creating the scaffolding so that we can dismantle racism, especially systemic racism in the medical and hopefully in, in our institutions, as well as our um, individual um, lives. So we're gonna look at different levels. We're gonna start on the individual level, what we can do person to person. Next slide, please. Um, next slide. So as individuals, we need to look at what biases we have, especially unconscious or implicit biases. And how, and how am I defining this? It's a process of association, associating stereotypes or attitudes towards categories of people without conscious awareness, which can result in actions and decisions that are at odds with one's intentions or explicit values. And some examples of how providers, um, how, this, how this comes out, For us as providers, even as individuals, are if we look at who's hired for a job or selected for a promotion. Which classes are students placed into and who do we send out of the classroom for behavior infractions? And what treatment options do we make available to our patients or not make available to our patients? Next slide, please. So what is our goal? This is another great book recommendation by Dr. Ibram Kendi. Next slide, please. And he talks about anti-racism. So the opposite of racist is, isn't not being racist, it is anti-racist. And what's the difference? One endorses either the idea of a racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist, or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. So this is our role as healthcare providers. Our role is to how do we make our healthcare systems anti-racist? What policies continue to perpetrate health inequities, and what can we do about those? And that's where, that's the work that needs to be done. So next slide, please. So let's look at the clinical, what can be done in a clinical practice? Next slide. So these are some questions that I've um, contributed by Dr. Maria Trent and, and other colleagues, you know, some basic questions to kind of ask yourself about your practice or institution. Are there images of diverse families on your clinic walls, multicultural books, videos and toys in your waiting area? Are staff diverse and able to deliver culturally and linguistically appropriate services? Are you performing quality assurance assessments to determine if your patients are having similar outcomes regardless of race? What is your practice doing to improve quality when possible? And are you screening for social determinants of health using a validated screening tool? Next slide, please. So things that we can do in our practice, um, reach out and read, as was alluded to before, is doing the work to work to increase the diversity and inclusion of books offered um, to programs throughout the, throughout the country. And in addition, they also have a podcast hosted by Dr. Um, Nafsaria, Dipish Nafsaria, where he has engaged in conversations about books and the importance of diversity and inclusion. And then as you see, there's some uh, additional book recommendations for children. Next slide, please. In addition, The bible, I guess, of pediatrics is um, Bright Futures, and they have um, tip sheets and resources um, and an assessment form on how to integrate social determinants of health into the health supervision visit. Next slide, please. Some additional um, podcasts from uh, fellow um, pediatricians and and, um, and friend, Dr. Lanre um, Falusi, um, the Hippocratic host. She, she hosts this podcast with her friend. I, I had an opportunity to do an episode, be a guest on her show, uh, Racism, as well as Dr. Nira Garris, as well as um, the podcast that I produce, uh, What is Black podcast. Um, next slide, please. So how can we help our parents and caregivers? Next slide, please. So this, this slide, um, basically summarizes child development and race. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that development of, of a racial identity is, a, is part of our development. Um, by six months of age, um, babies can notice race-based differences. They don't ascribe bias, but they can notice the differences. By ages two to four, children can start to internalize racial bias. By age five, children of color are, are conscious of existence existing stereotypes of their group. By age eight, children are aware of social norms that begin to develop implicit forms of bias. And by age 12, these ideas can become set. So there's opportunities at each stage of development for us to do our prevention work. Next slide, please. This slide just basically indicates that our children, are you know when we think that we want to protect them from this concept of race and racism we really can't this is everywhere from young people protesting against the injustice of um, police brutality from young people understanding that that they might be targeted or there's a perception that they're targeted older people who internalize the racial racism that they've experienced as children, as adults, but then there are also opportunities, right? How can we not only, we know that these, this, this, that racism exists, systemic racism exists, but what can we do to fight it? And how can we help our children process this? Some ways that we can do this include using media. So CNN over the summer had a town hall meeting um, after the death of George Floyd And again, a colleague, Dr. Mia Hergaris and many um, psychologists and educators participated to talk to parents and talk to young children. And again, we have these young people um, with their parents and other adults protesting. This is also a way that we can get our children civically engaged in fighting for justice. Next slide, please. There are also tools um, to help us, resources, again, this is just the beginning. There, there need to definitely be more resources. Um, HealthyChildren.org, these are two articles that I was able to co-author um, with um, Dr. Nia hurd and Dr. Shanta Anderson. One, how to help um, parents talk about racism and talk about racial bias. But there are opportunities. If, if you're a provider that wants to write um, articles for HealthyChildren.org to help parents have these conversations, I think they're more than open um, to work with you to write, write articles. So I would, I would encourage you to do so. More needs to be done and we need your voice. Next slide, please. Other great resources, pds.org um, has resources to talk, to talk to young children about race and racism. So we can really help our parents really have these conversations. Um, next slide, please. And again, some other wonderful uh, book recommendations. And many of these books are actually going to be, um, are being advocated for to be added to the Reach Out and Read um, catalogs. And then we also need to work on our workforce development and professional education. This is a resource shared by a colleague, um, Race and Racism in Medicine. um, And it provides, you know, there's different topics in medicine and there's resource. So basically it's a curated resource list for how physicians can really, learn how that they can address racism in medicine. Um, I think think this is mostly for um, those in practice, not in practice, those in training, as well as um, medical institutions. Next slide. And some additional trainings from from the Public Health Foundation to help help health professionals integrate racial equity into their practices. Next slide. Again, more um, book recommendations. Next slide. And then lastly, we'll talk about as individuals, how can we get involved um, in community engagement, engagement, advocacy and public policy? Um, in talking with Dr. Catherine, I understood, understand that um, Connecticut had, Con- Connecticut Children's had a white coat of black lives. Um, it, and there's also opportunities for us to get involved locally in our community. Many of us work outside private practice We work in education, justice systems, and public health settings. And in those roles, we have the opportunity to advocate for for basics such as clean water, access to food, safe neighborhoods, housing stability, and educational equity. And also increasing mental health supports and services in schools, advocating for alternative strategies to incarceration for management of nonviolent youth behavior. So there's a place for and a role for each of us. Next slide. This slide I love because There's a history of healthcare providers, physicians being involved in the movement for change, the move for social and civic justice. And this is a slide um, from 1964. It represents the Medical Committee for Human Rights. Um, It was created by a group of doctors and nurses to formalize their activities as street medics for protesters. But along the way, they also organized their own protests calling for the end of discrimination in hospitals, and other medical practices throughout the South that had long declined to treat African-Americans. So there's a history. Next, um, next slide, please. Other things we can do is, and you know, ask asking this question, has your county or state declared racism a public health crisis? Next slide, please. So as Maya Angelou said, and she's always like, I think that probably like one of the best ladies in the room, right? to really really talk about um, social social issues. Um, So this is a quote from her. She says, the plague of racism is insidious, entering into our minds as smoothly and quietly and invisibly as floating airborne microbes enter into our bodies to find lifelong purchase in our bloodstreams. Next slide. So we have a choice. We can choose courage. Or we can choose comfort, but we cannot have both. So this is, I guess, the call to action. As physicians, as individuals, what role will we play to fight racism, become anti-racist, so that we can improve the health and outcome of all children and families? Thank you very much. Next slide. So, open for questions.
0: Thank you very much for just an amazing uh, presentation and uh, for bringing this issue to us uh, front and center. I think you, you made some remarkable comments and, and uh, have inspired us to, to really, as a call to action for, for all of us. So really appreciate your work, um, the quality of your presentation and, and what you're doing on behalf of, of children and to diminish uh, inequities that are so prevalent in our communities, unfortunately. Um, So we have um, time for questions, uh, and we have Dr. Wiley here, and um, uh, we have questions that are coming in through the chat room. Uh, I'll begin with uh, the first one is from uh, uh, one of our former uh, residents, uh, uh, Caroline uh, and Amin, who's now one of our faculty members. And what is the best way to bring up and discuss current events, racial tensions, inequity at our well-child checks?
2: Oh, that's a wonderful question. I think one way to do it is, again, if you're doing a social determinant questionnaire, um, that might be one way to bring it up. Also, when you're talking to, to patients, you know, talking to your clients, they may also just be a check-in. So how have you been doing over the summertime, right? Not only is COVID-19 impacting school, you know, your back-to-school preparations, but how, ha- you know, how, have the, how has the news and the events that are in the news, um, you know, how are you, how are you dealing with that as a family, right? So that might be a segue into how to, how to really have that conversation. Um, and I think another way, if you're a participant in Reach Out and Read, um, it might be a way to talk about, um, not necessarily maybe not directly race or racism, but when we talk about our books and why it's important to have um, diverse, diverse books. So those are some suggestions. And then I would love to hear how other people, that's why I think I tried to leave a little bit more time for this discussion. It's also try to hear from if other people can share how they're doing it. So this, this, these are my ideas, but I think everyone, I think this is important for us to really learn and grow. We need to work and share with each other.
0: Uh, perhaps Kathy, if you can comment um, on, on your practice, um, you know, what, how do you bring up and discuss these issues with, with your families uh, that you follow here in Hartford?
1: Dr. Jujie and I were talking about this last night. Um, it is a, uh, you know, a sad reality that we have a list of what used to be 157 anticipatory guidance items that's now grown. Um, And um, I can't help wondering how peas and carrots and apple juice and screen time took over anticipatory guidance. And this has kind of fallen by the wayside, but my patients have actually helped me through this. This summer, um, I found a number of teenagers um, were um, raising the fact that they had participated in protests or friends had participated in protests. that um, gave me a new entree to actually ask other children who are not bringing up the issue, and that was really helpful. I have a love-hate relationship with telehealth. <laughs> I really um, miss feeling baby's hips and listening for murmurs and touching um, the mom on the shoulder and drawing on the tape paper with the child. But um, I've found teenagers, especially in telehealth, if they have, feel they have privacy, especially, are sharing things that they didn't always share face-to-face Reminds me of when my kids were um, in the car and they didn't have to look right at me. They would tell me things that sometimes they wouldn't tell me when we were sitting around the table. Um, And I found that lots of sensitive things were coming up and it was easier to raise. Um, So um, right now there's so many world events, it's much easier to talk to kids. Um, Younger kids, I found it harder. Um, Some parents are very open to the discussion and some parents uh, as Dr. DuJay was mentioning, you know, want to shelter their children. They don't want their children to know, or they think that um, talking about it will make kids worse. So it's not easy, and I think is an area we need research. Um, we need to know what are the most effective messages, which messages resonate. Um, and I, I don't know, Dr. DuJay, if you could comment. You know, I feel as a white pediatrician, um, I'm not sure how my res- messages might resonate and whether you think it makes a difference in how we should approach this.
2: Don't, I personally don't think so. I think, um, I think as long as we're showing empathy and engaging, right, and really listening, I think those skills we definitely have to bring to the table, no matter if we're talking about race, if we're talking about gender identity, um, anything that impacts our identity or what might be perceived as, as quote unquote differences, I think empathy and understanding and listening um, really are gonna make the difference. Because unfortunately, they're not enough doctors of color, right? I think that's, that's so you know what? It's, it's everyone's game. If we wait just for Black, Latino, and Asian-American or Indigenous um, doctors to do this work, um, it's not going to get done or it's going to get done much slowly. So this is why we really need everybody um, to be engaged and not be afraid to be engaged in the work. We can be afraid, but just,
0: Thank you know. You both. Uh, we, have, we have a number of other questions here, um, uh, 14 actually. Um, so the next question is, when thinking about systemic racism's impact on health, can you comment on the satellite system of providing medical care as part of a structural racism as it limits access to care to certain populations due to lack of adequate public transit? So 40% of Hartford residents do not own cars. How do we mitigate this issue?
2: Oh, that's a... That's a very good question. I think I think you have to look at your structures, right? Go back to that question about how does your how does the transportation structure impact those? You know, how does it create barriers, right? So I think you kind of have to go back to that and try to figure out um, how can you address that or redress that so that you can create. You know, there are models all over the all over the place. There are community schools where, um, you know, healthcare healthcare. Resources, workforce service resources, um, educational resources are brought to a brought to a local school so that's in the community where people where it's walkable. Um, there's school-based health centers. So I mean, I think they're like they're great models. How do we partner with fairly qualified health centers? So I think we really have to be innovative and really think about. Um, I think that's important. Understanding that there are barriers created by the structures that we've created, and then how do we redress that by being innovative. And maybe even starting simply and even talking with um, our patients to how we can, um, how can we, how can we best help them, right? It's not always top down. It really should be a community engagement. So hopefully that was helpful.
0: Thanks. One of the things that, uh, I, you know, I can go back and Kathy remembers when the Children's Hospital was being built and, and decisions were being made whether it was going to be built uh, 14 miles west, 14 miles northeast. Uh, or in downtown Hartford. Uh, the final choice was downtown Hartford precisely because this is an area where we can actually have or provide the care for children directly that, that need us the most, that have the least transportation. So I think that was a great decision that was made, and, and uh, we will continue to support that. The next question, uh, this is a comment. This is amazing presentation. I agree with racism. as a socially transmitted disease. The first time I hear it that way, um, and, and so powerful from that perspective. Uh, the question from Dr. Blummer, one of our pediatricians, one major change that is needed is our welfare system that encourages single mother families and tends to keep people dependent on the system that disc- and discourages self-improvement. Uh, so can you comment on that statement? Uh, the major change that is needed is our welfare system. I don't know. That's a, that's
2: a I mean, that's a, that's a, That's not a unique perspective. I look at it this way. I mean, I think there's that that, um, old saying, you know, pull pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? But then ultimately it's kind of like, what if you don't have the laces in the boots? You don't have boots. Um, So I think, you know, I think this idea of, we have to look again, like, you know, the systems that we create are created with the outcome in mind, right? So, looking back at um, why a welfare system was even created, right? It was it was really meant to be a safety net, and hopefully, with a safety net, it's not that's not the only solution. The other solution are looking at the systems that make it difficult. I don't think it's welfare, quote unquote, welfare alone that's holding people down, right? So, it's not just the educational system; it's not just the justice system, right? It's a, it's a societal um, decision. So I think we really have to think of, I don't, I, don't, I, I think it's, it's not just one, this is a complex issue. I don't think it's just one thing. And we have to look at why, um, why people are not advancing and what things can we put into place or redesign and rethink so that everyone has op- equal opportunities and an equitable opportunity to advance.
0: I, I I could not agree with you more, and I think the the one thing that is really important is that that you know we have a small window for children. Uh, Paul Dworkin, who heads our OCH uh, office of child community health um, activities and endeavors, always points out the the importance of of early intervention. And uh, if if one waits for a whole system to change, regardless of which method you use, you will you will have inequities, especially for those younger children that need that need those support services early on and really can't wait for the societal changes that are needed. The next question is from uh, uh, Ana Maria Verissimo, uh, one of our pediatricians, Uh, and says, sadly, it's actually a comment, sadly, when economic forces cause tough decisions, the mental behavioral health support is usually the first to be cut. Um, Either either Kathy or or Dr. Duje, any comments on on the behavioral health support systems and and what it means in, in the context of racism?
2: So I also want to just go back briefly to the prior question, you, you talked about young children and the safety net and welfare system. So I look back, you know, I look back in history, right, during the 1960s, um, Lyndon Johnson's born poverty, right, with the development of Head Start, um, the development of, you know, more funding for federally qualified health centers, we actually improved the status of many young children and many families, right. Um, so just taking that a little bit further in terms of our behavioral health system, I agree, I think that is one of the first things to go um, when we look at economics. But then I also look at what are opportunities, right? So I try not to you know, too, dwell too long on what we don't have, but try to, you know, this resilience, right? This sort this, um, of a deficit, more of a resilient uh, mindset in the sense of like, what can we build on um, you know, we have to look again at our school systems. How can we support mental health services in our school systems? Um, many of our states have, despite lack of um, psychiatrists, have developed um, systems of care where, um, I know in Maryland we had BHIP where, uh, and I, I, I believe, I don't know if Connecticut does, I, I forget, um, but other states have it. Maybe it was Boston or Massachusetts, I should say, where you can call a provider Unfortunately, pediatricians, the burden may fall more on us than it has to provide mental health resources. Um, There's also co-location of mental health um, providers um, within within pediatric pediatric practices. And again, going back to the school systems, how can we support school systems in getting more mental health supports um, into the school system? And that take, I mean, know oh, that's gonna take funding, it'll take innovation, but I think there are ways we can work on it. And, and as well, um, just as in the in medical field, we have a low number of, of um, doctors and practitioners of color, the same is, is how true in the behavioral health world. So we really need to work to find ways to increase the diversity um, and inclusiveness of our practices. But I think, gonna have to we're gonna have to find more um, innovative ways and educational ways to help address um, the needs of our families head Start also offers um, their teachers are learning more about social emotional development so I think our schools um, our practices um, really have to kind of work together to try to find some innovative ways um, to do this but I agree I think one way we can do this is who are we voting for vote 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 this is the election season our legislators legislators have have um, have the opportunity to, to make funding decisions, and by our vote, we can determine what are the priorities for um, our children's and, children and communities and families.
0: Thank you for, the, for that great answer. And um, this is a question from uh, Dr. Silva, who's our, our Chief of Pediatric Nephrology. Um, and she states, I frequently bring up racial disparities in healthcare and, and differences in access to care, morbidity, and mortality. Uh, frequently saddened to learn that many physicians do not. How can we encu- how can we encourage other physicians to do this work? And, and you know, this would be a question for Dr. Duje and, and perhaps a comment by Dr. Wiley, since she's, uh, you know she has a number of residents that learn from her. So, Dr. Duje, how do you how do you help other docs bring these issues up more more clearly, well defined, uh, in a way that seems logical and, and well informed?
2: I think first and foremost, um, our institutions have to create the safe spaces, right? These safe brave spaces for people to voice their concerns and voice the need for a, a more open dialogue. I think many of our institutions may have to bring in maybe a third party um, to to really have, you know, do an assessment, or we even do internalized assessments about um how it is our practice, right? Um, how are we practicing? How are providers are being supported in their practice? And unfortunately, right, fortunately, unfortunately, it may be just one provider at a time, but I think there is, there, even though it's, it's not the majority so far, right? We have a groundswell of people who are very much interested in doing this work. We have to find ways to just make sure that we're supportive, encouraging, and also um, provide for the safety, right? Mental health, well, you know, physical well-being for um, those that are the champions of, of this important issue, and really, and also do the work on ourselves. But I think it's going it, to. It, I think forums like this are also encouraging, but also making sure that after this forum, after we have this presentation, what are we now doing um, to ensure that we're we're inclusive in in thoughts and perspective. And really making changes, real changes, and supporting our providers.
0: Kathy, brief comment. This
1: um, presentation is to um, expand the knowledge base, awareness, and skills of um, the uh, the audience and then the people that you come in contact and specifically for the residents and you know I'm thinking of the REACH program and your CLEs, um, Dr. Duje gave a long list of um, you know low-hanging fruit of things that residents could could work on you know whether it's policy statements or chip sheets for parents. Um, we have a group of medical students interested in fundraising for um, books that really emphasize diversity equity inclusion Um, which I I still think the books are a a wonderful tool, just like they are a tool into talking about other sensitive topics like parents' literacy. They're a a avenue into uh, being able to talk about racism in the office. And I think the groundswell is important. And I think that uh, we learn from each other uh, and the more you do, the easier it becomes.
0: Kathy, uh, this is from uh, Dr. Zalneraitis, our residency program director. Uh, I'm an old practitioner and faculty member who has been witness and participant in many of these issues and in activism. They all start with outreach and determination to make a difference and disappear into the background without major sustained change that I can detect. What will it take this time and what will be the thing that really moves the needle? Dr.
2: DuJay? Well, that's a wonderful question as well. I think the needle is moving. I have to have hope, right? I have to have hope that the needle is moving I have hope that I'm a first generation um, African American biracial woman who went to med school um, and am doing this work. I have colleagues who are multi, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, um, that have done the work. We support each other. Um, young, young physicians um those in, those future young physicians that are on the front lines protesting you, you look at the white lives white lives black white girls for black lives uh, movement many of the many of many of that is really being propelled by younger physicians so i am i am hopeful um, i think more has to be done i'm not i'm not going to say that all is done and we're done right and we can just rest i think it i think things are moving not fast enough. Um, certainly not fast enough. But I think it's moving. I I, I see a different. I wasn't born during the civil rights era, probably shortly thereafter. Um, but we have the right to vote, right? We have we have to, it, despite despite voter suppression. There are ways that we can empower each other, to love each other, to make sure that you know our voices are heard. To, to move this forward.
0: So I do have hope, I have hope. Could not agree with you more. I think this is a, uh, th- th- this feels very different than I, uh, than, I can, than I can ever remember. And so I appreciate your words of optimism, which I believe fully. Uh, from one of our neonatologists, Dr. Nancy Lewis, uh, you have suggestions for guiding awareness and caring for new mothers and setting of newborn sick infants. Awareness in that population.
2: Oh, awesome a good question. Um, I guess I guess it goes back to making sure you're doing the work yourself, right? In terms of looking at our unconscious biases, um, looking at your data, right? Outcomes are infants. Are there different infant outcomes based on race and ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and looking at why, right? And trying to try to figure out how can you address those root causes. But again, I think with with everything, right? It's really about empathy, right? It's really about putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, um, setting aside our preconceived notions of people, right, or checking those preconceived notions so that we're bringing our our humanness, humanity to um, how we're talking to patients, how we're interacting with patients. But I think that work really has to be done individually with checking our biases and then, you know, finding ways that we can improve the systems of care so that we improve the outcomes for our families.
0: Thank you. Uh, from one of our cardiologists, uh, Dr. Wang, uh, do you have suggestions about how to how medical professionals can integrate with efforts in schools to engage in topics of racism, uh, which is, by the way, absent in many suburban, predominantly white populations? Great question.
2: Um, so I would say, you know, talking to the Board of Education, I mean, there are opportunities to the Board of Education. Um, many school districts have school health councils, that are always looking for um, engaged um, communities, parents, um, professionals to be involved. Um, also volunteering at your school. Um, our local, our local, and then going back to the Board of Education, my local school system, there was a, there was a push to address um, racism in the in the curriculum, um, the impact that racism is having on um, children of color in school. And there were parents and students who said you know we told the board of education you need to make a change and they formed a racial equity committee so my husband told me about it he knows you know i like talking you know talking about racism right because i want to make a difference and so my children were still in school i volunteered i mean it, it was a selection process but i volunteered to be on that racial equity committee it takes extra time um but if we wanna make the difference, you know, find, find something, find, find like the low hanging fruit like Dr. Wiley mentioned um, to be involved. But I think first and foremost is who, who are you voting, who are your board of education? Um, if, if there's a re-election, are you asking them what their platform is, you know, regarding anti-racism, the curriculum? Um, if you're a parent, talking to the school principal, the administration, being very involved and, you know, being active um, and if necessary, maybe form a racial equity committee within your PTAs, within your school system, the Board of Education. I think those are ways to get involved.
0: Thank you. Great, great ideas. Uh, from one of our psychologists, Dr. Wakefield, um, Very, this is a very good question. Implicit biases seem to be very difficult for individuals to identify due to its unconscious nature. What would you suggest is the best way for providers, for all of us, to increase our own awareness of our own implicit biases?
2: I would say... Um, there, there are actually implicit bias um, assessments. So, you know, those are some things that can be done um, in books. I mean, there, there, are books. There's, I think, a book called Bias, right? So, allows us to do some of that introspective work. And I think, you know, we just work. We, we have to. We have to really acknowledge the fact that we all have biases, even if we may not know them um, or call them out. I think we just have to just just be aware that. What, whatever, whatever choices we're making, decisions we're making, may be informed by that. And maybe before we make that, make that choice and make that decision, kind of think about it and reflect on it. Um, would I do this for everyone? Why did I make that choice, right? So some of this like hindsight and looking back. Um, but again, there are assessments that can be done. And then just kind of just thinking about being purposeful um, in our care, being empathetic, right, um, in our care, um, in our interactions with other people.
0: Um, from uh, one of our developmental pediatricians, Dr. Cater, uh, uh, how do you discuss the topic of school choice programs with families? Uh, for students who are bused out of the suburbs and might experience overt racism, do you have any resources to share if families feel direct discrimination?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I haven't had to deal with it uh, myself personally in terms of busing. The only you know, the- only personal experience I've had is, um, you know, fortunate/unfortunate as a parent, right? You make choices in terms of where you where you put your kids in school. I made the choice to put my children in a predominantly white um, school system. You know, the district is the district is diverse, but where our school, our children's schools were located, it was predominantly white. Um, and unfortunately, kids of color in a predominantly white school, it's it's a real it's a real concern. Um, some, some resources, I would say tolerance.org, I think is a great resource for education. Um, embrace Race um, might be a good resource. And also, um, I would even reach out to the local school system to see if they have resources as well, especially if they have, um, if they have a racial equity um, um, platform um, for their school system.
0: Thank you. I'm going to ask Dr. Wiley to close the session, and uh, we are getting close to the nine o'clock hour and, uh, and continue. So, Kathy, you can take, finish I, it up.
1: I, thank you so much. I think we're out of time. Um, we certainly are um, inspired and energized. We have our work cut out for us. Um, we have lots of new ideas, and um, we so much appreciate your time and expertise and um, wisdom. Um, thanks once again. Thank you. Thank you Kathy, and
0: Kathy. Thank you, Dr. Dujay for your time. Uh, this is fantastic. We hope to see you again. And thank you everyone for participating. Uh, we had many, many of you. There are still some questions that are left unanswered. We'll do it online as, uh, as soon as we can. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next Tuesday. Bye-bye.